Hi, podcast listeners. On this episode, we continue an ongoing Montague Reporter discussion topic, the relicensing process for First Light Power. We have two scientists along with reporter Sarah Robertson to discuss the environmental impacts of power production on the Connecticut River. If you haven't been following this topic all along, I recommend you check out some of the Montague Reporter's previous reporting on this topic. There are several links in the notes for this episode. Okay, let's get to the show. Hi, listeners. Welcome to the Montague Reporter podcast. I am Sarah Brown Anson, the host and producer of the podcast. I'm very pleased to be here today with Ken Sprankle and Roger Gwizdowski. Ken works for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service with the Connecticut River Fish and Wildlife Conservation Office. And Roger is an adjunct professor with the Department of Environmental Conservation at UMass Amherst. And we also have a co-host, Sarah Robertson, who has been reporting on the First Light relicensing process and impacts on the Connecticut River. Hi, Sarah. Hi, guys. Glad to be here and ready to talk about dams and fish and beetles. <laughs> right on. Ken and Roger, could you each introduce yourself a bit? My name is Ken Sprank. I'm the project leader for the Connecticut River Fish and Wildlife Conservation Office. I'm a fishery biologist by training. My office is a fisheries office, and I've been in this position since 2009. I've worked as a state biologist uh, in New Hampshire and have had uh, several different positions within U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. But over my whole career, I've almost always been involved with migratory fish restoration in, in those different roles. This is Roger Gwizdowski. I'm an adjunct professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and I have my own small business, Advanced Bioconsulting LLC, from which I do mostly contracting with state and federal officials for endangered insects. I've been doing this since about 2016, although my professional background is in evolutionary biology and entomology. That's what I have my doctorate in. I've done some bioinformatic work with taxonomic uh, indices and databases for postdoc work. And way back when ago, I got my start as a marine mammal trainer at New York Aquarium. Um, and then my career went off on track and I went to graduate school. I should have probably stayed training marine mammals. But there's a thread of working with tiger beetles that started when I was an undergraduate. And so this is a project, uh, well, really a number of projects I've been keeping up with for I, what's almost now the last 20 years, uh, which leads me to talk to all of you today. And I've spoken with both Ken and Roger in some of my reporting on the First Light relicensing process. As many of our listeners know, First Light is the hydropower company in Turner's Falls, and they are currently having their 50-year license reviewed and as part of that process, um, assessing the impacts on wildlife in their releasing of the water and hydro operations. So I would love to like get, maybe get started with us talking about how dams impact wildlife in general. And maybe we could start with Ken talking about um, the impacts that they have on migratory fish. And then we can drill down into the, some of the research that Roger has done on this endangered tiger beetle. It's a good question. It touches in many different areas. Dams, um, as, you, as people are familiar with, it really changes the hydrology of the river. So a flowing system becomes impounded and when you impound a flowing river system, you're decreasing water velocity, sediment will come out of, um, out of solution, settle, so you can get sediment buildup. Uh, there's, there's deepening because of the reservoir, of course. And then areas are also flooded out. So you're, you're affecting natural river 
processes where you would normally have, um, you know, expected flow changes along the shorelines and movement of sediment, uh, water temperature, dissolved oxygen, there's physical and chemical effects that occur in the impoundments. And those are also propagated downstream of the dams, which in the case of uh, hydroelectric projects, you have pulsing of water typically tied to uh, when electrical demand is highest or most profitable for the company. So you get a uh, a, a peaking operation, as we observe um, at the Turner's Falls project currently, and of course that that changes the habitat downstream of the dams. Uh, it can be fairly dramatic in terms of uh, the the timing, the frequency, the magnitude, the duration of those changes that occur. Um, that they're you know they're they're pulsing the water through, and so all those things have impacts to habitat um, along the, the, the shoreline margins, as well as, you know, in the river proper. And that affects, of course, the aquatic biota, not, not just only fishes, the invertebrates. Of course, Roger can speak to that, but freshwater mussels, other invertebrate life, um, you know, lots of organisms that aren't in the river proper also utilize those organisms for food, uh, as, as you know. And of course, the fishes are impacted by that as well. So when we talk about those dam impacts, for example, upstream of a dam, there, there are typically uh, expected riverine species uh, that would occur in an unimpounded river. And so those species, all of a sudden, because of that habitat change, it's no longer suitable for them. And they're pushed out of those habitats to the margins upstream of where the impoundment is. And within that impoundment, you get lake and pond species, for example. And so as an example of that, you'll have um, species like largemouth bass um, and, and different uh, sunfishes and so forth, as opposed to uh, fall fish, white suckers, other species that really have evolved over time to live in a flowing, free-flowing system. So um, I guess I'll, I'll wrap it up there and let Roger speak to some more of, of the things that he can speak to. For most of the, the broad-scale ecological impacts, I would defer back to Ken because he's done a great job at giving an overview about uh, the cascade effects that dams have on, you know, just ecosystem disruption generally. And, you know, it's of course, uh, and I only mentioned it briefly, a contentious issue because dams perform a very important service in many ways, but the reality is there is this ecological disruption. And I think um, that's, that's what's usually at stake in controversies about dams in my limited understanding. It was part of my understanding from reporting on the uh, tiger beetle issue that there is a specific problem with peaking operations and how the two dams in Turner's Falls and Holyoke interact. Do, do you want to describe a little bit how that impacts the beetles? Yeah. So that's work that I'm researching as of last year. I'm writing up some of those reports now, and it's going to be ongoing work to really understand what those effects are. But kind of the general ground that I'm covering, at least from a, a research perspective, is to understand, you know, the, the, well, I sort of, I, I sort of got us right into what is the life, what we'd call the life table. So for any species, what, what an ecologist would really want is a life table to talk about population demographics over time. So for example, in humans, we have a continuous life cycle. So we're born as, as babies and we grow up and we have different, uh, artificial categories we put in where we'll say K through 12 or some sort of uh, commercial demographic like 18 through 34, 
Um, but really, we have this, this continuous development. So to try to understand what a, a life table would be, or at least what impacts mortality at different life stages, we have these somewhat artificial distinctions. But for insects, it's very clean and clear because insects have different uh, discrete life stages. So everybody's hopefully familiar with something like butterflies, which have eggs, larvae, pupae, and adults, all of which are very distinct and all of which have slightly different and, and sometimes markedly different ecological impacts and sources of mortality. So I can bring that in for landing for the tiger beetle because we're trying to understand what those uh, sources of mortality are for the different life stages and are the life stages affected by river flow relative to dam flow. And that's a question that still remains. It is. Right. So that's a question that still remains because the, um, the question that we're looking at is, at least with a Puritan tiger beetle, is somewhat comparative because we have, and I should say that a, a difficulty in working with endangered species for any species is the numbers are often necessarily low and the replicates are hard to get. And so to get, um, you know, very rigorous scientific questions done with endangered species, it's often just practically very difficult. So often what we're doing is a lot of inferring based on known patterns of behavior or ecology. So we've got one population in Southern Connecticut where the influence is somewhat tidal down there. So that the effects of any kind of dam peaking or dam flow, they don't seem to be as, uh, as influential farther South. Whereas now up in um, the Rainbow Beach area and then farther North, they do seem to, the, the peaking flow seems to have different effects on the river. So what I'm looking at particularly um, for the population on Rainbow Beach is you know, uh, is the water coming up to a place that's affecting different life stages? So specifically the, the eggs or the larvae. Um, and if it is, is it inundating them directly? Is it having a, an effect? Um, and then of course, there may be other effects in terms of the ecology uh, for other insects that are present that make up the prey for the beetles. So there's a lot to, to know. It's actually, it's, it's not as easy to get a conclusive answer as, we'd, as I'd like, as anybody would like. Hmm. There was another really important component I wanted to make sure I stressed that uh, I passed it over to Roger before getting to it. And uh, that has to do with the, the fragmentation caused by dams for the movement of organisms. And in the case of Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, we're very focused with uh, sea run fishes, so these migratory fishes. And so as, as everyone can appreciate, when you put up a dam, um, that excludes them from accessing potentially historic spawning and nursery habitat. And in the case of Turner's Falls, certainly mm -hmm. we have a, a suite of species um, that uh, we're concerned about. There are fish passage structures there for both upstream and downstream passage. And we can talk more about that, but uh, these um, sea run fishes, and I'll give you an example, American shad people are familiar with that species. They, they need to spawn in, in fresh water. So these fish, you know, migrate thousands of miles over their life, maturing out in the open ocean and then coming back to the Connecticut River to spawn. So it's they're really kind of a remarkable species. And there are many others we can talk about as well. But uh, uh, the dams, of course, fragment that habitat. And with that, mm -hmm. you have issues with them being able to access that historic habitat. So that affects range distribution within the basin. That has ecological impacts. It has impacts for fisheries, we like to support, uh, you know, the, the utilization of these species for recreational uses. And with that re reduction in habitat, that affects production from this river system, which is the largest uh, in New England. 
And so that has implications out in the marine environment as well, because all of these river systems are contributing uh, to these fishes and their productivity in the marine environment where they have ecological value for a whole group of species. So just wanted to make sure uh, we, we didn't move too quickly past uh, the fragmentation and fish passage issues. We have a river basin commission and technical committee that works cooperatively to restore migratory fish. And I'm a member of that for the federal government with the state partners. Fish passage was first provided uh, in, in 1980 at Turner's Falls. There are three fishways located at Turner's Falls project. There's a, a fish, fish ladder located at the dam that for fish that make it up to the base of the dam, they can go up that spillway ladder and they still need to then pass through the gatehouse ladder. So that's the third ladder. They may also approach the Turner's Falls project, be attracted to where the Cabot power station is, and there's a fish ladder there. So they may use the Cabot fish ladder. If they, if they go that route, that puts them into the power canal and they have to find their way through the power canal, which is a little over two miles long, get up to where the gatehouse is located. I mentioned the gatehouse ladder and find that entrance, get out of the power canal and get through the gatehouse. Well, uh, the power company developed those fishways uh, through directions of, of the federal government. We're, we're the ones that provided the technical expertise and they, they followed what we had recommended. But at the time, if you go back to the late 1970s, that was when the designs would have been developed. Uh, there was there was nothing on the East Coast comparable to what we were talking about trying to pass uh, American shad uh, in terms of fish ladder. There was there was a fish lift at Holyoke, but not in terms of a ladder. And so we used um, design approaches on the West Coast where they they were passing lots of shad in the Columbia River where they had been introduced. And those designs were brought in and employed at Turner's Falls. They were downscaled significantly. The Columbia River is vastly larger <laughs> than the Connecticut River. So they were, they were scaled down and that affected the hydrology, uh, which affected the behavior of the fish. And so they just never really performed very well uh, through no fault of the power company. But again, that, that's, time has passed. We have this relicensing process and it's the opportunity to address those deficiencies, which the power company has acknowledged in their, in their recent uh, uh, amended license application to to address those changes. And I'll, I'll riff off of what Ken's saying to to mention just a, an aspect of time, because as we think about what we're what the current circumstance for conservation of any species is currently, we we and I say this in the, in the broad sense of of conservation biologists, we're always thinking about time um, going forward into the future. So how do the effects that we take today? How is that going to work out for the species or this population in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years? And, you know, I'll often try and bring up in planning meetings <clears throat> to sort of fancifully imagine that the, the us of 50 years from now, what will they be saying about what we've been doing today? So um, that's a bit of a theme, I think, in terms of conservation for any project, and particularly here where we're trying to, to, to meet, you know, the needs of power production, but also the needs of species as they're moving up and down the river. Downstream passage is also very important. That's something that we're also looking at, there are some downstream passage measures in place at these dams, but again, with this relicensing, we have an opportunity to really improve upon those because the performance of the existing structures, not only at Turner's Falls, but at other places are generally nowhere near uh, where they could be because we have learned a lot uh, from the late 1970s to now, and, and we wanna utilize that information. Uh, we have fish passage engineers 
at Fish and Wildlife Service, which have great expertise in the Conti Laboratory uh, at, at Turner's Falls that you folks talk about, uh, a tremendous research facility. You know, we, we've learned an awful lot and we want to we want to utilize that information. That's that's our, our plan going forward. And in fact, for example, for American Shad, we have fish passage performance criteria within our shad management plan. I mentioned this Connecticut River Technical Committee we have, this, the CRASC. And so we have a performance criteria in there that will allow us to have a much greater likelihood of achieving our goals, which are, are much greater than what we're observing right now in terms of passage, getting fish upstream and getting fish back downstream safely. Do you feel that First Light is addressing and integrating this new knowledge into their plans? Like what are some of the specific changes that they've suggested do you think will work? What do you think could be improved? We've been working with them uh, forever. (laughs) You know, I mean, really since, as I say, in the 70s, you know, the the ladders went, went in, um, there were issues. They worked uh, with the agencies uh, to try and make improvements, modifications. You know that that went on for you know right up till very recently. Um, just with the relicensing, we we stopped. But they were constantly trying to make little tweaks and, and fixes and, and improve things. Uh, work with us on that. They've proposed in their most recent submission to FERC, it was a, a submission in December, their amended final license application that provided a lot of details on what they wanted, what they're proposing to do. And I would say um, what they're seeking to address are things that we have collectively identified and, and agree are issues and concerns. How we, how we get there in terms of the details, uh, that remains to be determined. Uh, we're having internal discussions among the federal agencies uh, because we have the authority to prescribe fish passage measures. So uh, I can't uh, tip my hand on that, but uh, they, they, they are certainly very aware of the things we're concerned with. And, and they, they recognize uh, the vast majority of them and, and it's incorporated, but it, it gets down to the details, of course, right? Devil's always in the details. We, we have agreement on many of the concerns of just how are we going to address them? That may not be, uh, we may not have complete agreement at the moment, but again, we're we're working on that internally, how we'll propose our uh, fish passage uh, recommendations and also habitat recommendations. And then we have Endangered Species Authority as well. Uh, I work with the National Marine Fisheries Service. They're the lead agency for the endangered short-nosed sturgeon population. So they're the ones that are going to speak to that. Roger's working uh, as a head technical person with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, who's the lead agency for the tiger beetle. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll rip off of what Ken was saying about the devil in the details, and I'll, I'll, I'll forward that to say the solution is in the details. Because it's, it's, you know, as we've been talking, you know, both Ken and I, we've been sharing attributes about life history and how those impact, you know, a species survival in a habitat, you know, over the course of time. And so it's rare in conservation that there's just a, a one really easy solution that you can apply. And it often requires, you know, this connected understanding about what species are doing at any one place in time, as well as as what I'll tell students about in terms of the fourth dimension, all the way over through time. So in the the whole life cycle of a species, what's happening in terms of its 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 needs at different times and places. So, but but you know the, it's not unknowable, and the solution is in the details for sure. It's just often really really complicated. It's hard to to 
understand how complicated these matters are uh, unless you're really involved in it. There's just it's it gets extremely complicated. <laughs> it, it does, and, and I I can appreciate. You know, like I think for any of us that have services done in the world, like we have to get our car repaired or something, and it's always more complicated than we expected. And that's not dissimilar from how, you know, encountering uh, objective reality as per ecology works too. Hmm. Um, Would either of you want to talk about how it changes things when you're dealing with endangered species? It kind of changes the rules, like more accommodations needed to be made in regards to the tiger beetle in short-nosed sturgeon and uh, sensitive creatures. Regulations protecting endangered species are viscous, but I think that's beneficial because it's viscous both ways. So it's very complicated for me as an agent of the service to be doing this service because there's a lot of paperwork to be filled out. There's a lot of um, considerations involved in terms of actions in the field and how that might impact species. But similarly, anyone else uh, as an entity in the world who wants to then have an effect um, on these species in their habitat, they have to go through similar um, uh, permitting requirements. So while, while I can complain and say it's really difficult, it's in many ways to the benefit of the species. The Endangered Species Act is a powerful law. You cannot harass, harm, injure, uh, affect their habitats. Those are all federally illegal. You're liable for a take mm-hmm. if you do any of those things. So that applies to, to Puritan tiger beetles, their habitat, any of their life stages. It could, it could be an egg. Um, so right. uh, again, for uh, I'll bring it up to the short-nosed sturgeon. Um, that's where the National Marine Fisheries Service, we, we divvy up some of the species. Uh, in the case of the short-nosed sturgeon, the National Marine Fisheries Service has responsibility. We're, we're fortunate in that the Conti Laboratory and, and, and researchers that work there have been doing long-term studies uh, with the short-nosed sturgeon population. So we have actually some good published data on short-nosed sturgeon that have informed what we believe are uh, required recommendations, for example, mm-hmm. with flows in the spring, because we know that a, an important spawning habitat is located in the bypass reach, where right now uh, there's limited flow occurs. That's going to dramatically change in relicensing. And the, and the power company has agreed to that in as much as what they've provided in their proposed flows to address short-nosed sturgeon. So you, you, we want to have that uh, those fish be able be attracted, get up into that habitat and have suitable flow conditions such that that habitat provides good spawning habitat, good nursery habitat for the period of time when we would expect them to be there through that entire dura- duration before they would be leaving that area. And so, you know, th- those are all things that uh, get into life history, habitat use, the details that uh, Roger says, again, you, you, pu- you pull on that thread. Um, and so there's <laughs> lot, mm-hmm. lots of uh, things to think about. But um, that, that just kind of speaks a little bit to the endangered species. But again, it's a very, a very powerful uh, law. Yeah. Um, and, and if they, they cannot get their license uh, until um, the Endangered Species Act is, is deemed as, as approved. Uh, and so what happens is if, if you don't, there may potentially be a jeopardy finding. Jeopardy means, you know, you're putting the population at risk. That's, that is bad news. Um, in many oh, yes. cases, and this happened down at Holyoke, the Endangered Species Act was followed. They were allowed a take of a certain number of fish because they simply could not 
have no impact at all. So the National Marine Fisheries Service agreed that they were doing many positive things. They were going to improve many things, but there was no way around the fact that you may lose a few fish. And so these are the sorts of things that are worked out through the Endangered Species Act, that there is oftentimes, not always, some allowed very minimal take that won't jeopardize the population or their habitat. So what Ken's saying is take is, is an official term that's used to describe killing or destroying, which you know sounds, of course, um, undesirable, but really in the course of doing any kind of study or action, it's often a necessary part of the work. So for example, um, for the rearing work that I've done with Puritan tiger beetles, it's considered take because for the rearing facilities that we had, um, as I explained it to folks tongue in cheek, it's like a roach motel. Um, these beetles are going to come in, they're going to breed in the lab, but they're not going to leave alive. And there's a number of reasons uh, that are well-worn in terms of captive husbandry for not returning things back out into the wild. Um, for the beetles, it was the end of their life cycle. And so we learned a lot about how long they can live in the lab. Um, because returning, because they live so long that returning, at least when we had them in the lab, returning beetles uh, back out to the wild in November um, means they're going to freeze on impact. So, um, but for example, that's take. So uh, every year we would take um, a, about 60 beetles for, for breeding. And so that's just removing 60 beetles directly from the population. And so it gets these um, upstream considerations and permitting is, you know, to, to know more about that population. Is that healthy for the population? Can they sustain that? And we'll, we'll talk to other experts who have been looking at that population as well to judge, is this worth it? So it's clear that the industrial nature of, of dams and, and other things on the Connecticut River have had a huge impact. But thinking about recreation, what are some impacts or potential impacts that either individuals using the Connecticut River for, for recreation or just opening up the river to more recreation, what kind of impacts um, might that have on the river ecology? We like to have healthy populations that can support sustainable utilization. And so that comes with, you know, for example, restoring American shad to the upper part of the basin where right now, it is strictly catch and release fishing because the numbers are too low to support a management plan. So in the state of Vermont and New Hampshire, you can't keep an American shad. We'd like to see that change. We would like to have people be able to go down and fish and keep some shad uh, to eat if, they, if they'd like to. Um, so um, when, when you start to move away from the utilization of the resource, science-based management of a resource, I cannot speak to, you know, whitewater boating and things like that. I'm not going to speak to that. So sometimes we're, we're, at, we're at odds uh, with that because it may, it may involve potentially manipulating flows. I'm not saying it always does, um, but there are, there are other organizations and groups that can speak to uh, those other sorts of recreational activities. Um, for us, uh, the, the, of paramount importance is, uh, you know, the persistence and health of fish, wildlife, plants, other organisms in their habitat. That, that's, that is our overarching highest priority. And these other things get settled out by other people, including FERC, if they want to balance those needs with power production. You know, that's mm -hmm. not our, our role. Our role is to, to get to, to use our tool, you know, our, our tools, regulatory tools to do the best we can for those populations and, and habitats. 
in general, uh, you know, light recreation is often not very harmful to places in the river. Um, and, you know, by light recreation, I mean, canoeing, you know, wading, uh, paddling, like these, you know, these kinds of activities. Um, but in terms of intensive use uh, on particular habitats or particular populations, that's a problem to some degree with, with the Puritan tiger beetle. So as a stark example, I'm also involved leading a project um, to try and translocate a new population of the northeastern beach tiger beetle. So this is a, a different species that lives on beaches in the northeast, or at least it used to live on beaches throughout the northeast. Um, and these are coastal beaches. So after World War II, increase of beaches throughout the northeast spiked and uh, this particular beetle has its mating season in midsummer, so July and August. So the adult beetles are out trying to do their mating beetly thing at the same time that people are out trying to do their people thing. And there's um, been all kinds of shoreline modification, uh, beach cleaning by giant beach drakes. So there's been a lot of disturbance in this habitat, which has completely annihilated the populations all throughout the Northeast. So that's an example where, you know, um, recreational use has annihilated uh, populations and, and nearly an entire species up in the Northeast. So for the Puritan tiger beetle, you know, the, that's a, an issue we're looking at at Rainbow Beach because that beach gets a fair amount of recreational use. This year, it got what seems like an extraordinary amount of recreational use. And as just an immediate example for me, as I'm doing some studies out there this summer, I had set up transects to look at about meter a meter wide transect um, for, running through a number of transects up and down uh, the beach, the, the the profile of the beach. And so I had one that was, I don't know, I, I forget the, about 30 or 40 meters long. Um, and I lost about the first uh, five or eight or 10 meters of it, which was nearest to the shore. Uh, so this is, again, you know, day glow line. I'm walking up and down with a clipboard. It's not unambiguous. And there were so many people in so many boats, they had just ripped up the first base, almost a third of my, my transect. And so I couldn't complete my study because people had ripped up the transect. <laughs> oh. um, so there, there's a, a sort of a small but poignant example where recreation abuts up against um, not just the, the, the ecological functioning, but sort of our observation of ecological functioning. So, so I, I will add one thing to that. You know, there's a whole group of stakeholders. So of course you have the, the federal resource agencies, you have the state resource agencies, um, you also have non-government organizations, and I'm going to mention the Connecticut River Conservancy, who we partner mm -hmm. with extensively. I think they're a great organization. Um, and I will Agreed. say that they're hosting webcasts that will include relicensing and recreational topics, uh, relicensing and fish population and other uh, population impacts, et cetera. So the Connecticut River Conservancy, for example, they are advocates trying to speak for all the different recreational uses, which may include camping along the riverbanks, uh, boating access, uh, whitewater boating, you know, those, those sorts of things. So um, that's an example of an organization, you know, people can find out more and, and uh, just want to mention that as, uh, you know, as an option. Where can people find more information if they want to know more about um, the ecology of rivers or your work specifically for either of you? For me, I, my, my office has a website and uh, the website posts uh, studies that I've conducted, things like uh, juvenile shad production uh, assessment work. I do that with the state of Massachusetts and we do that work all the way up to the Bellows Falls Dam in Vermont. That's something we've been doing for several years. We have management plans. I mentioned uh, the shad management plan that's on, on my website. There's uh, 
all that sort of information. There's a, another group, the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission that I work on also with other state people and, and, and we're responsible for management plans uh, along the Eastern seaboard for, for a lot of these migratory species that get stepped down to the river basin level. So anyways, my, my website uh, has quite a bit of information and some other web links um, that it, it, fish counts, uh, an annual report, uh, for, for the work I do that has, you know, stuff that's relevant to what we're talking about here. So that's, you can just search uh, Connecticut river fish and wildlife conservation office and, and that'll come up for you. For listeners, I will include some links in the podcast notes. Mm-hmm. In, in particular for the Puritan tiger beetle, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for all endangered species, they have a clearinghouse webpage that's a species-based page for that species. So I can I can help you find the link for that. Um, and wonderfully enough, the Hampshire Gazette and there's been a number of other news outlets who have shown interest in the Puritan tiger beetle. Um, I, maybe the most high profile in terms of national coverage has been the New York Times. They put us on the cover of the Science Times back cool. in 2018, which was extraordinary for the ability to just share this story about what's happening in our little stretch of the river. Um, so I can share those links with you as well. And and I will say that you know my office is just it, it's myself and and uh, I have a, a staff biologist. Um, and if you go to my website, you'll see all the different things I, I work on. So outreach is something it, it's hard for me to make time for. So uh, we, we were talking about the Connecticut River Conservancy. I know they have information on their website uh, regarding the relicensing too, which I think. Uh, would be another good good option to uh, go to that Connecticut River Conservancy site also. That was actually going to be my next question. Like if people want to be involved and have their voice heard in the relicensing process, where should they go and what should they do? But I think you just gave us that platform. Right. Good, I think the I Connecticut, know. yeah, the Connecticut River Conservancy there, you know, one of the things that'll be coming up uh, because we're finally drawing this, uh, to a close would be we anticipate in May uh, for uh, FERC to rule that they have all the information they need. Right now, there was a request for additional information that the power companies are providing both Great River Hydro and First Light Power. So that's occurring as we speak. Uh, the timing is such that we expect in May that that information will all be settled out and FERC will rule that they have enough information and they do a ready for environmental analysis. When that happens, that's an opportunity for people uh, to contact them and say, I want to be an intervener in this proceeding. Um, and so that that provides kind of a formal status. Individuals can do it. Uh, if you're in a watershed group, you can do it. And then everything subsequent to that point, you have an opportunity to to, to speak up and say, hold on a minute, you know, I, I just read what was said and I disagree with it. And, and um, you know, there's opportunities uh, to then be, you know, actively engaged. Now you can also be engaged indirectly, as we say, the Connecticut River Conservancy is gonna be having these different meetings. You can contact them. You can certainly contact any of the state or federal agencies. People can contact me with concerns. I am contacted by people with concerns and uh, those, those concerns, depending what they are <laughs> and the details associated with them, you know, they're certainly considered uh, and may be raised. So, you know, we work, uh, you know, I work for the public, <laughs> uh, same as uh, 
the, the state agency people as well. And uh, the one thing I guess I, I would like to say in closing that we didn't touch upon is we have a, a tremendous partnership uh, stakeholder group, which includes, as I say, if we're going to talk about first light power, we've got uh, the, the uh, Massachusetts Division of Fisheries and Wildlife. They have fishery biologists that we work with. They have their natural heritage and endangered species program. Those are a different group of people. They're, they're dealing with state endangered plant species, state endangered freshwater mussel species, uh, state endangered dragonfly species. Uh, you know, Roger's working with them. Of course, they're concerned with Puritan tiger beater as well. We also have, um, you know, the National Marine Fisheries Service, uh, which includes, um, a couple different biologists within the Fish and Wildlife Service. Again, I'm a management biologist, but we have a regulatory biologist. This is what you know those people do. They deal with federal permits and so forth. I'm I'm more or less a support person uh, for my background and experience with the fish populations and 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 fish management and so forth. We also have fish passage engineers, as I mentioned. You know, really uh, specially trained individuals. We're very fortunate, both Fish and Wildlife Service and National Marine Fisheries Service. We have those folks involved. And then we have some really great non-government organizations, the Connecticut River Conservancy. I keep mentioning them. The Nature Conservancy has provided tremendous uh, technical support uh, as we've been going through this. Um, and other folks, you know, there are, we've, we've met as stakeholders with the whitewater boaters as well, who have said uh, many times to us that they, they want to be in line with what is important to us to, to ensure the populations are healthy. And, and I've always appreciated that. Um, so they, they, they do wanna be in line with that. So, you know, we've, we've had the whitewater boaters uh, we've met with uh, as well. And so um, we're, we're very uh, a unified uh, group on all these concerns because oftentimes there are so many different species, life stages, the timing. Uh, so you talk about space and time operations. In, in some cases, there are there is some balancing that needs to occur um, relative to, to a particular species versus another species. And so these are things that uh, internally we, we've been able to work out some very good understandings. And, and we're all uh, talking singing from the same sheet of music. <laughs> Great nice. metaphor. Yeah, very much. I, I really agree with what Ken said, because for any one story or any one circumstance people are aware of, there's a whole structure of, of dedicated people and experts and interested groups who are often behind the scenes, um, which is maybe something that I'll, I'll leave with in terms of, you know, what Ken and I have been talking about, again, comes from species-based perspectives. But, and while that, those get headlines, it's, it's almost never really about the species. It's almost always about the ecosystem and the habitat or populations. It's about something larger than just any one species. Great. Well, this has been a great conversation. Thank you all so much for being here. Well, thanks, thanks for asking. asking. Yeah, yeah, thanks for asking. This is great.